testing one two one two testing testing hello everyone i'm back again with another episode and uh, i wanted to try and do episodes more frequently now because i do have a lot on my mind and uh, there's a lot happening in the world as well so for the purpose of this podcast i'll be really doing my uh, ancestors descendants not ancestors that's the other way around a disservice if i don't keep abreast of the hot button topics of the day so yeah welcome so today i wanted to talk about twitter i don't know how if i should give an explanation of what twitter is because who knows how far into the future someone's listening to this if someone asked you what bebo was i don't even know really remember what bebo did i guess like an instant messaging app but if you have to explain to a kid from you know a gen z child post 2000s you definitely have to explain what bebo is even though it wasn't it was only what 20 years ago that it was in existence but everyone knows twitter i imagine twitter is going to be still running well into the 20s 60s and 70s and 80s but twitter the popular online <laughs> social media platform i guess you call them was acquired by elon musk who is now the richest man in the world i'm not too sure depending on who you ask it varies between him and bill gates and jeff bezos anyway he acquired twitter i think it's been four months now and there's been a lot of interesting reactions on social media in the mainstream media in the political space and i found that very curious and i feel like a lot of people my age well, to stereotype them, I guess, they're not really in tune with the kind of subplots politically of, you know, the acquisition of Twitter by Elon Musk and all the different subtext and quite embarrassing and fascinating discussions that are going on regarding his acquisition of Twitter. So I also think it's quite an important historical moment because of the free speech implications regarding censorship and first amendment in america the uk doesn't really seem to be as involved regarding the free speech stuff it seems more an american thing because twitter is very instrumental to political campaigns it seems in america and so it seems to be like a kind of battle to control it between the republican and the democrats well ostensibly twitter's more or less democratic leaning and so they're seen to censor the right-wing views etc etc in the past few years, Twitter has been engaged in what I would describe as a lot of blatant censorship, suspending accounts, removing pages, removing tweets. A lot of the time, they don't offer an explanation. Sometimes they say it violates their terms of service, which are in themselves can be very dubious. But the complaint has kind of been like, you know, Twitter censoring people. The counter to that is that Twitter is a private company. They can do what they want. If you don't like it, don't go on Twitter. Which is odd because the people that want Twitter to censor people, they don't use the same argument. They don't say, like, if someone's being mean to you on Twitter and abusing you racially or bullying, harassment, you can just come off Twitter. I guess they would say, you know, that's a morally cowardly position. Fair enough. But what we found out with Elon Musk's acquisition of Twitter is that a lot of the opposition to his purchase has been from a kind of right-wing perspective. People seem to be disappointed that Elon Musk sort of tepidly 
vowed to censor less people and commit to free speech. I'm going to go through in a podcast how that's totally fallen apart and collapsed, but that's kind of what's been going on. And then there's been a release of the Twitter files, which is kind of like kind of internal Twitter records that show the extent of Twitter censorship. So to kind of recap, Elon Musk acquired Twitter, I think it was five months ago or not. Time goes strange in these times, so it's kind of hard to say when this stuff actually happened. And I guess some could say I could have researched that, but, um, well, it's irrelevant. Anyway, I actually did look it up, and it said he initiated the acquisition on the 14th of April 2022, and it was concluded on October 27th, 2022. So, that's about, what, two months ago now? And there was some fanfare regarding... You know, this newfound devotion to free speech Twitter was going to have under Elon Musk. Because Elon Musk, when he initially signaled he was going to buy Twitter, complained a lot about how restrictive Twitter was in removing people and things like that. And what you had almost immediately was a kind of outcry from liberals. I wouldn't say the left, but liberals, which is like democratic voters, democratic leaning people, who they felt... Twitter wasn't doing enough to censor people. Now, the, the kind of call for censorship on Twitter, to my knowledge, began or really kicked off, even if it already existed before, after the 2016 election. I remember even before that, when you'd have stuff like harassment on Twitter, I remember Milo Yiannopoulos, this right-wing idiot, was saying loads of mean, horrible things to Leslie Jones, the actress. And Twitter never deleted his page. They investigated and they said he didn't violate their rules. Now, at that time, I must admit, I was one of those people that felt like, this is outrageous. How can he be allowed to say that? They should have banned him. They should have deleted him. Obviously, now I now see that that's actually not the correct position. And they were right initially to just say, well, if Milo Yiannopoulos, with his one Twitter account, and maybe all the other people that are like retweeting it, is saying mean things about Leslie Jones, she could just block him. And she doesn't have to see his tweets again. She could... Yeah, that's it, really. It's really that simple. Even muting someone does a pretty effective job of, you know, sh- you know, putting their tweets away from you. And Leslie Jones is also a person that's, you know, a famous actress. If you're really getting offended by what one person says to you, that would be like, you know, you have Ronaldo, Messi, Beyonce, all these people that have hundreds of millions of followers across all the platforms. If they really started to read all the mean things people say about them, Especially after, like, you know, in case of footballers, they lose a game. Or in the case of musicians, they have a bad performance. Or they do something that people don't agree with. You know, you have, like, uh, these artists. It's really the hip-hop ones that get involved in all sorts of nonsense. Brushes the law and stuff. You just start reading all the responses and opinions people had about them. I mean, they might just break down mentally. So, from that perspective, it's a bit of a dubious argument to say, these people are saying mean things, so you should remove them. No, just don't listen to them. Like, if I, every time I went down the street, someone said mean things to me, you know, is it enough for the police to get involved? If they were harassing me, like, physically in my face, yeah, fair enough. But if they were just saying things from a distance, I could just walk away. That's how I see it, anyway. I guess some people might disagree. But back then, Twitter seemed quite devoted to basically operating as a kind of platform. So the way the internet works, where... I can post anything, you can post anything. 
You don't have to click on what I post. I don't have to click on what you post. But no one, that, you know, that hosts a server or anything like that is held responsible for what I say. So Twitter wanted to have the same kind of publisher relationship where they just publish people's opinions. But if whatever those people say is offensive and stuff, well, that's just, you know, what you're going to get, isn't it? It's almost like the fact that we have free speech means some people are going to use their speech to say horrible and mean and nasty things. The answer to that is not the government should restrict restrict free speech because that would affect all of us. The answer to that is is have more free speech, maybe to counter it, or just don't listen to them. <laughs> Very simple. But anyway, moving on from that, after the 2016 election, what happened was the Democrats lost, blamed, I mean, they blamed a lot of things. Hillary Clinton blamed many, many things, but one of the things she blamed was the fact that what she could describe as fake news was able to spread on Twitter. Now, it's funny the, f- the term fake news because a lot of people think the phrase fake news originated from Trump. But it actually originated from the Hillary Clinton campaign. They started <laughs> saying the phrase fake news. And so, you know, there was a meltdown, especially because, you know, the, the victory of Trump was so traumatic to many people. There was a kind of meltdown in which people were like, yes, that's exactly why, actually, because if they hadn't published this thing and this thing and that thing, then Hillary Clinton would be president. The number one thing they blamed was the publish of the DNC leaked emails. So DNC leaks were essentially the DNC leaks were essentially a leak of um confidential, I guess you might say, DNC emails, which showed blatant corruption between the DNC and Hillary Clinton. Essentially they were working as an arm of the Hillary Clinton campaign when she was still meant to be competing in a free and fair primary election with against Bernie Sanders, the independent senator from Vermont. So that was really embarrassing the Clinton campaign and kind of essentially bolstered the whole claim of Trump and uh, opponents of her corruption, which, I mean, I guess that's not just smoking gun evidence that she's corrupt, but I guess it certainly didn't help. Now, that was one of it. The other thing was the 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 Russian angle, which is actually far more significant in this case, I would say. So there was a whole conspiracy that Trump was working, colluding was the new term that everyone was saying back then, with the Russian government to basically steal the election. Now, the interesting thing about this theory is that the idea of Trump being close to Russia in a way to allow him to possibly collude with them, I'm going to use their phrase, was actually something that was invented by the Hillary Clinton campaign because they had perceived one of Hillary Clinton's weaknesses as some of the cozy deals she did with Russia while she was Secretary of State, one of which was to sign an agreement to sell a large part of um, the American uranium reserve to some Russian oligarchs who in turn had donated large amounts of money to her charity, she calls it, NGO or charity? I don't know which one, the Clinton Foundation. I guess an NGO. And so this was seen by her campaign as a really big weakness of hers. So what they try to do, as they do in politics, is that you're going to turn your weakness into your opponent's weakness. So if you're weak on Russia, you're going to make your opponents be perceived as weak on Russia. So that's kind of what they did. Obviously, they didn't expect them to actually lose. So when they lost, they actually started to double down on this. And they started to blame. And so the more Hillary Clinton was doing badly, 
during the election cycle when James James Comey came out and said she's under investigation for using a private server and things like that, the more she would you know deflect some kind of Trump connection, and the media, as you know, dutiful lapdogs of hers, started to investigate you know the flimsiest of so-called Russian connections. Obviously, there was nothing there because the idea on its face is very very stupid, but. It was enough for the media to totally obsess about it. And even two years into, you know, Trump's campaign, maybe three years, Democrats were still holding hearings and investigations and essentially trying to find out if Russia, you know, infiltrated American democracy. Again, their words, not mine. Those words don't mean anything to me. And this kind of push for finding out how did Russia help Trump steal the election, even though that never happened, kind of led them to the the realm of social media advertising. So there was some, again, they used the phrase Russian-linked companies, which I'm not even sure what that means, that bought ads during the election to try and, you know, essentially troll farms, you know. It's a very common thing that I'm sure most marketing people know as Marketing 101. You have a bunch of people with a bunch of accounts, you know, you pay them and they boost your stuff. You know, that's essentially what influ- that's the influencer model but instead of paying one influencer, you just have a bunch of, you know, bot accounts that you can just use to simultaneously boost a message at once. Very, very, you know, okay, bit, bit dumb. I don't know how much it actually works, but they found some accounts that did this and they linked them to Russia somehow. And so they said this was evidence that Russia was trying to plant disinformation and fake news to try and, you know, disrupt the sacred American democratic experiment. And so this kind of basically led to a, a call from not only the government, but it seems like a lot of people, especially given that you know half the population voted for Hillary Clinton and wanted her to win, this kind of led to them um, essentially clamouring for Twitter to censor more people. So the answer to like the fact that you know someone's going to make a bold-faced lie statement or an opinion that you think is totally wrong wasn't like, well, just read a different opinion or you know, decide for yourself. It was like, these tech autocrats should be able to just remove it from my presence so I don't see it anymore. Some might call that a bit bit of an unusual response, but in the climate that I was happening in, I can sort of sympathise with them, sort of. I should mention that one of the key claims regarding this, that basically, you know, furthered the course of censorship was that, was the claim that the DNC servers in which the emails were released from was hacked by Russia. So the story goes by the Hillary Clinton campaign and the DNC that Russia hacked the DNC and then turned the files over to Julian Assange to help, you know, I don't know, to destroy Hillary and help Trump win some kind of part of Russia's sinister plot to get Trump elected. So they claim this is kind of probably the one of the key reasons why Julian Assange remains you know, in Belmarsh prison right now because he's basically wanted for this alleged crime. But the, F- this, the DNC never turned their servers over to the FBI so they can investigate the hack and try and determine the origin of it. Not only that, one of the N- NSA's top codebreakers, William Binney, has, you know, said authoritatively and conclusively that the DNC leak was not a hack. It was downloaded from a th- thumb drive because of how fast the download speeds were for them to, you know, obtain the information. And I'm, I'm guessing that the 
DNC probably know that, which is why they refused to turn their servers to the FBI. They actually got another company called CrowdStrike to, you know, sort of, you know, investigate, so they say, and come to the conclusion that Russia was responsible for it. So this kind of bolstered the claim that Russia was indeed behind all the, you know, sinister, even though they're not disputing that the DNC emails were original, I guess their logic was that, is it okay for news media to report on hacked material, which, you know, up until then was always seen as, you know, no matter how the information was gotten, whether illegal or not, it is still public information. So once it's out there and once it's available, you know, journalists have a right to report on it. That's how most of the most important stories, you know, in the past century have been broken. The Pentagon Papers and, you know, many things like that. It's been ruled by, you know, the US courts time and time again that reporting on leaks is not the same as leaking, you know, as I'm participating in the hacking of the material itself, and so should be legal and protected by the First Amendment. Anyway, I guess they were to throw that out the window. And so, Twitter then begins, you know, begins to receive calls for censor people, remove this, remove that information, and I guess you know, behind the scenes they began. I was quite you know in the lefty media space at that time, so I would always see stuff about you know Palestinian accounts. Essentially, Twitter started to work, you know in coordination with governments to remove people's pages. And there was actually a quite revealing thing that happened a few years ago when, you know, some, I think some kind of terrorist mass shooting happened and all the governments in the world was condemning hate speech. Of course, it was a very hollow thing for them to do. But I feel like they were doing it to basically send a signal to Twitter that, and all these other social media companies that you have to do more to remove this kind of information. Very, very, you know, slimy of them, but, you know, our governments are. And fast forward to now, I guess, you know, what, what the Twitter files now show is essentially, you know, what we've always suspected that, you know, we, I, I guess I'd known that in the case of the Israeli government and Twitter, that the Israeli government, you know, basically demands Twitter to remove Palestinian accounts, which they do, with no, with no little to no pushback. But the US government itself and some of the US presidential campaigns, so both the Biden and I think the Trump campaign, sent accounts to Twitter for removal. So the old argument that people had before of like Twitter's a private company, they don't you know, they shouldn't be bound by the First Amendment. It shows that that whole thing has been kind of fictitious because Twitter's been acting at the behest of presidential campaigns, which are, you know, governments in waiting, and also the FBI to, you know, give these people sensitive personal information or try to just be able to solicit the information. Sometimes whether they give it to them or not, it's unclear. But they've definitely been, you know, banning accounts and suspending accounts based on requests from the government. Like, this is one of the most serious violations of free speech we've seen. Well, I'm only 25, so in my, in my year, so, you know, in my whole existence. So it, it's, it's kind of insane. And what you know, the the files also show some kind of activism, activism by the employees of Twitter saying, "As people, we're not going to stand for X, Y, and Z people being on the platform." So we demand that our the the you know the 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 ownership and management remove them. You know, mainstream media calling for more censorship. It, 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 we're living in a strange time. As a kind of free speech, free speech absolutist myself, it, it's kind of troubling to see where things are going.
it seems like every time I try to wrap up this podcast, the Twitter files are uh, the gift that keeps on giving. And so more information comes out that's even spicier than what I've recorded. Like this week it came out that the head of the House Intelligence Committee, Adam Schiff, one of the prominent Russiagate pushers, was essentially lobbying for Twitter to ban individual accounts. She was given to her personal account and saying, ban this one, ban this one. Which, uh, the brazenness of the censorship knows no bounds. But um, I think maybe what I'll do is I'll make another podcast in which I summarise, as the Twitter files come out, the ongoing and more alarming censorship efforts. That way I don't feel like I'm cramming it all into one. As it's a kind of a fast development story. I've also kind of played with the idea of um, releasing a podcast for each kind of historical issue I see. So it could be like, you know, 10, 15 minutes long. Just a quick update. That wraps it up for this episode. I will record a few episodes in the next coming weeks interviewing my brother and also one of my very good friends who lives in Nigeria about the Nigerian university system which I feel like is worth documenting and it's kind of a curious development I don't know how a proportion of my listeners are in Nigeria or from Nigeria but live here they might find that interesting so um, I'll speak to you guys next time